Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Thursday, February 12th, 2015. Happy Question Evolution Day. One of my new favorite holidays, you know? Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down. Stop. Open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to examine what's being said Take those biblical passages that are being thrown about by the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, authors, conference speakers. Put them back into context to see if what they're telling us is what God's Word really says, or if they're telling us something completely different. And unfortunately, I, you know, what they're telling us, well, it's something completely different. So let's talk about, well, how do they say it? You know, bright, shiny things that distract us. Or you can talk about the proverbial squirrel, right, that uh, just gets us completely off topic. Well, our our number one is going to be just replete with those types of examples where what's being put out in mainstream evangelicalism is stuff that is, well, a squirrel. It is, it's a distraction. It takes your eyes off of Christ, takes you off mission. And so many Christians believe that by chasing after these things and following after these people who teach these things, that somehow they're, that they're really learning the, the real deep stuff of Christianity. And the reality is, is that nothing could be further from the truth. They're not learning any of the deep stuff of Christianity at all. What they're learning is nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. So let's talk about how we're going to break that down today. And uh, and then just so you know, I'm kind of cheating. Hour one kind of has a theme. Hour two is its own thing. So just keep in mind, hour two doesn't quite work with the theme. And I made an executive decision. I, I'm allowed to do that here at Fighting for the Faith because, I, you know, I am the captain of Pirate Christian Radio. So I made an executive decision to theme hour number one and not the, and not have the sermon review theme work with it. it there's a reason why and you'll uh, you'll understand when we get there in fact i can talk a little bit about the um, hour number two andy stanley let's talk about our sermon review first andy stanley who is you know listen when i tell you this andy stanley is one of the major generals 
within the seeker-driven network. He is not a low-ranking guy. He is a very high-ranking official in the seeker-driven network. And so when he says things, um, I make a point of trying to pay close attention to what he's saying. And um, if you remember back, I'm kind of doing a bunny trail here. If you remember back when I reviewed Robert Morris's sermon on the blessed life and the principle of the first, I spent the first hour teasing out the proper distinction of law, gospel, old covenant, new covenant. Well, if you haven't listened to that yet, the at least hour number one of that episode, you need, you need to go back and listen to it because you're going to need that information for our sermon review today. And because um, what Andy Stanley is doing in this sermon is it's mucho importante. Um, yeah, it's a little Spanish lingo there. But uh, and what I mean by that is, is that he is wrongly distinguishing between law and gospel in the old covenant and the new covenant. And his twists are somewhat subtle, but they are monumental in their impact. And this is one of those sermons that kind of telegraphs uh, to the people at his church at North Point. Uh, you know, this is a, if you would, kind of a, um, a seeker-driven, you know, internal values type of sermon to reinforce a particular mindset that they have there. And uh, and this is the kind of stuff that, uh, you know, from time to time when you find these types of sermons, you, you, I got to review them because they're that important. In fact, if you don't make a habit of listening to hour number two because the sermon reviews have a tendency to make you want to take your head and stick it your neck into a guillotine and pull the trigger and, you know, lop your head off. Well, I understand that, but this sermon is one that you need to listen to because this will kind of give you an idea of the propaganda within the seeker-driven movement by somebody who is not low-ranking, but I mean high, high-ranking in the seeker-driven movement. There's very few people in the seeker-driven movement that outrank um, Andy Stanley. And, and, you know, the few people that, you know, that I would count on, my, on one hand would be Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, and Bob Buford. Immediately below them is Andy Stanley. That's how high up he is. And so uh, this sermon that we're going to be reviewing from him, it's again, it's it's really important. And again, I made the decision to throw that one into the mix after listening to it, even though it doesn't fit with the overall theme of the program. So hour one theme, hour two, no theme. Got it. So um, but now that you know what's happening in hour number two, let's talk about what's going to happen in hour number one. Yeah, I don't know what it is, folks. Um Best way I can describe it is this way: is that uh, we have some late arrivals. Yeah, that, the best way to put it, we got some stragglers in the uh, uh, 2015 prophetic um, <laughs> words category. And so, well, you know, I when they come straggling in, even though it's not January anymore, we're almost up on you know Valentine's Day in the middle of the month of February. Despite that fact, that we still have some late contestants, if you would, for the prophetic insight for the year 2015. <laughs> so we're, we got to make sure to get those uh, into our into the mix here. So we're going to be listening to Matt Sorger of the uh, Patricia King gang and his prophetic insights for 2015. Then we're going to listen to Jim Baker. Yeah, that's right. Jim Baker as of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, that guy. Uh, the Pete praise the Lord scandal. Yeah, after he got out of prison, he got remarried, and and now he has his own television show again. 
And on his YouTube channel, just this, just a few days ago, literally just days ago, they published a segment from their New Year's Eve um, episode of Jim Baker's television program where he was giving uh, prophetic words for 2015. So since they just were published in a format that, you know, I could actually get to them, you know, this, this counts as kind of like late straggler. So, you know, I, th- I think we'll have to name this segment late stragglers in 2015 prophetic words kind of thing. Then we will switch gears um, sometime in there, probably take a break, switch gears. And uh, when we come back from the break, we have a um, a God knows uh, update with the Cindy Jacobs uh, talking about um, prospering through the prophetic. But that, that's the name of the episode. Uh, but she's interviewing a, a guy she's put forward as a um, as a prophet by the name of Sam Brassfield. And they're talking about um, uh, apparently there's a highway that goes from Texas all the way up to Duluth, Minnesota, I-35, and it and it's uh, it's supposedly prophetically related to <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 35. So I thought that'd be worth passing along, and then we'll round out our number one with um, T.D. Jakes um, talking about uh, well heavenly supply and demand and things like that. So uh, that'll so you, we got hour number two is Andy Stanley mucho importante sermon review, hour number one yeah just just great examples of what I would consider to be theological squirrels. Uh, that means that they are designed literally to, you know by the devil to take our eyes off of Christ, sound doctrine, and what's really important and uh, and get us distracted. You know this is in fact this is exactly what happened to poor William Tapley. Uh, he saw one day he saw a theological squirrel. And uh, and now he is what he is. So, you, you know, you've been warned you, when it comes to these theological squirrels. You don't want to end up like William Tapley. So don't go chasing after the squirrels. So with that, we're going to dive into our program proper. And since we're starting with a Patricia King gang update, that requires us to do this. So I, I know you've been sitting on pins and needles just wondering, you know, are there any more prophetic words for the year 2015? Well, better late than never. Matt Sorger of Matt Sorger Ministries has uh, published his prophetic insights um, for the year 2015. I, I know it, we're halfway through February now, but again, you know, we still have so much of 2015 left that... <laughs> Well, then, you know, this is still a timely word. You know what I mean? So here's Matt Sorger to uh, give us his late entry into the uh, 2015 prophetic insights. Here we go. Hi, this is Matt Sorger, and I am excited to share with you prophetic insights for 2015. The first is a prophetic warning and unction to pray. One of the things that the Lord... A warning and an unction. That sounds serious. I mean, he, this is a guy who's issuing an unction. Whoa, that's got my attention. Me ...was that here on American soil, there are ISIS and terrorist groups already here in the land. Uh-huh. So God the Holy Spirit told you that there are already ISIS terrorist groups here in the United States of America. Hmm. Don't you think that with that kind of explosive prophetic insight that's supposedly coming from God the Holy Spirit that God the Holy Spirit would, you know, give us an address or two where these ISIS cells are hanging out, where they are in the United States, so that we can pass the tip on to the FBI and Homeland Security? I mean, 
thanks God for telling Matt Sorger that there's uh, prophetic, you know, prophetically that you know that there are ISIS terror cells here in the United States. But don't you think that you should at least have told us where they're at? You know, I, and, and this is kind of goes along the lines of my view of these guys as a Holy Spirit. It's not the biblical Holy Spirit. You see, you got to understand the Holy Spirit in their way of looking at, although they say he's powerful and stuff like that, he really, for the most part, has his hands tied. So notice the call is for us to pray. And so, you know, their Holy Spirit is up in heaven going, you, you know, uh, I really want to help you out here. Um, you know, but my, you know, my hands are tied and I really need you all to pray. And, and, you know, I, I talked to my good buddy, Matt, and, you know, I told him to issue a, an unction so that, you know, people would pay attention and, yeah, you know, I I look from where I'm standing up here in heaven. Yeah, oh yeah, you got some uh, you got some ISIS terrorist cells out there in the United States. But you, you got to remember, I have a really hard time with addresses and um and things like that. And so I I couldn't even begin to tell you where they're at. So I I, ta- I contacted Matt Sorger and let him know so that uh, he could get the word out and you all can start praying and and maybe if you pray enough, then. Uh, then something you know that maybe they can be thwarted you know really really we continue it said to pray that there would be an uncovering and an exposure of anything that the enemy has planned and if we'll pray and as we pray god will uncover and expose any terrorist demonic plot that the enemy has set against our nation america so i encourage you to pray into it just pray for every veil every hidden thing to be brought out into the open and the lord will intervene and intercept anything that the enemy has planned. Ah, okay, so God the Holy Spirit, he you know, until you pray, his hands are tied, and he can't really intercept ISIS yet. So, you know, an, an unction has been issued by Matt Sorger. I have some exciting news for you for 2015. This is going to be a year of the release of double portion inheritance. Uh-huh, double portion inheritance. I've heard this before. God is going to give you double for your trouble, and it's going to be the year of divine favor. One of the scriptures God put on my heart was Isaiah 40, and I want to read this to you. It says, A voice of one who cries, prepare in the wilderness the way of the Lord. Yeah, um, <laughs> that particular prophecy from the book of Isaiah is prophesying John the Baptist, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Have you read like the opening portion of the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of Mark that referenced that particular prophecy? Oh man. Away the obstacles, make straight and smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up, every mountain will be brought low, and the crooked, uneven places will be made straight and level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. And right before that scripture, it declares here to speak tenderly to the heart of Jerusalem, to to cry to her that her time of service and her warfare are ended and that God would release from his hand double for all of her sins. There, Yeah, again, this has messianic implications there in the book of Isaiah. So just because you saw in Isaiah, what, the 40, that there's a word, you know, the, the double for all of her sins, that somehow this 2015 is going to be the year of double portion? I don't think so. Something that the Lord is releasing from his hand, and it's a double portion anointing and inheritance 
to you this year. And in the process, God is going before his people and he is removing every obstacle. He's clearing out every hindrance. Every valley is coming up. Every mountain is coming down. God is going before you and he is clearing out everything that would try to hinder the plan of God for your life, or that would hinder the road that is before you, God. Yeah, again, you have no idea how to handle this biblical text, because that's a prophecy, again, specifically relating to, the referent is John the Baptist, and this has been fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist, as he was the forerunner of Christ, who prepared the way of the Lord, makes straight the paths before him. Ay, ay, ay. Clearing those obstacles out of the way. God is even going before his people, and he's clearing out even any plots or plans or assignments that the enemy had for your life. And God is going to clear it out of the way before you even get there. And in the process, there is going to be a revelation of the glory of God in your life. Also in Isaiah chapter 61, it also makes a declaration of the double portion. Verse 7, instead of your former shame, you'll have a twofold recompense. Instead of dishonor and reproach, your people will rejoice at their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double what they had forfeited, and everlasting joy will be theirs. Uh-huh, and everlasting joy will be theirs. Um, eschatological promise there in Isaiah 61. Man. Okay, so Matt Sorger, you just, you know, so you're sitting in your prayer closet, and you're just rambling and meandering through the book of Isaiah, and whoa, it's the year of the double portion, dude, and... Oh, and ISIS is here. Did you notice how nonchalantly he just, oh, yeah, no big deal. You know, God told me ISIS is here. Yeah, yeah. Moving along, next thing. You know, It's like, really? Really? Okay. So, uh, anyway, that gives you an idea of what's going on. What is this? This is just another example of what I call the theological squirrel. Uh, and if you think that God is talking to Matt Sorger and that these are somehow words that you're supposed to live by for the year 2015... Oh, you are in for a world of hurt um, and extreme disappointment is the best way to put it because this got you, it's got you off track. You're not being a good disciple of Jesus if you're listening to guys like this. And this is not what the Spirit is saying at all. Like, not at all. So, anyway, you get the point. Moving along. I've got time for a money grubbing televangelist update. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira now, the Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. Money, money, money. It's nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, money, money. Everyone must anchor for the bunchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round. You can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phase. For it's money, money, money makes the world go Money, 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 money. That's right. Monty Python's Money Song, one of the songs we play here for our money-grubbing televangelist update. And I got to tell you, I can't remember the last time I've done a Jim Baker update, but having perused the archives of his television program, which there's different snippets available on YouTube, I get the feeling that Jim Baker is going to be making appearances regularly here at Fighting for the Faith. And the only thing I can say is I don't want to go back to the 80s. And every time I see him, it takes me right back to the 1980s. 
Anyway, so yes, and I'm old enough to remember the PTL scandal. So yeah, those of you youngins out there who have no idea what I'm talking about, you can Google it. Anyway, <laughs> so here's uh, another late entry in the prophetic words for 2015 category because this was just published at uh, Jim Baker's YouTube channel this week. And uh, this, just so you know, the setup, this was the New Year's Eve television program of uh, Jim Baker's. And no joke, he's dressed in a tuxedo shirt with a bow tie and a black jacket and a top hat, Levi's, and it looks like work boots. That's all apparently something to do with God's prophetic words for the year 2015 given to the prophet Jim Baker. Here we go. But what God was speaking to me in the night, he said, tell the people, be ready for anything, because these days are not going to be days that you can figure out. These Uh So be ready for anything, because God is saying that these days are not going to be anything that you can figure out. That's weird, because God supposedly told Matt Sorger it's the year of the double portion. I guess I could figure that out, you know. You may have a sunshiny day, but you may have a huge storm the next day, but the storm will be different. And I'm going to give you all the things God has been speaking to me uh, for this new year. You sure that was God speaking that to you? The one thing is you need to be ready and have your boots on. Okay, so God is saying be ready for anything. Isn't it weird how all these guys that are claiming to be receiving direct revelation from God for the year 2015, and gals too, none of their words seem to be lining up. I mean, there is no rhyme or reason, common theme or uniformity to it at all. God is just basically speaking nonsense to all of them. Uh In other words, that means God's not the one talking here. See my boots? I've got my boots on with my tuxedo. With my and I have my jeans on. I'm wearing blue jeans, and I'm wearing a top hat. That doesn't look like it makes sense, does it? I think I think in, nowadays you could get by doing and this. That and that belt hanging there like that—that's a you lot. You could probably of go stuff. to a wedding with, a, <laughs> yes. with jeans. In it. But here's what it's God saying: Keep your boots handy. So it's the year of the double portion inheritance, but keep your boots handy. Because you may be walking through some... Okay, so you may be walking right into a terrorist cell because ISIS is here, but God the Holy Spirit won't tell us where. You may be going through some work. Last year, I mean, we're we're almost into a new year at this minute. Last year, we'll say, 2014, the greatest year of earthquakes and recorded earthquakes in the history of the world. Jesus said, watch when you see the earthquakes. It says, I'm coming really soon. The end of the earth as we know it. But one of the big things is uh, watch. And I didn't understand why I was to watch Now, let me give you the entire list of watch. And the reason I'm saying it, John, is because it's important right now. Watch Turkey. What is God says to watch Turkey? The Thanksgiving kind? 
by telling us about Turkey. He believes part of the great last day's war is going to come out of Turkey. So expect a Turkey war. Turkey is not a friend of Israel. Yeah, he actually believes that uh, the 200 million man army could actually possibly come out of Turkey. But And how, how is that possible? Uh, if if two, 200 million men is... Do they even have 200 million men in Turkey? So God spoke to me at that time to watch Turkey, mm-hmm. watch Russia, yeah. watch Korea. Why would we watch Korea? Korea and those South Korea is our friend. <laughs> but North Korea, they, haven't, they really aren't that credible as far as a big army goes. And then he said, watch the Mideast. Should we be watching the Mideast? Absolutely. And then watch China. This is what God gave me. These are the key places that are on fire. I mean, these is, this is where things are happening right now. And so here's what God spoke to me. Yeah. You sure that was God talking? Uh, uh, just a few hours ago, he said, beware... Of the wounded bear. Uh, Beware of the wounded bear. So isn't wounded bear like one of the names of like a Native American chief? So we got to beware of a Native American chief named wounded bear. Did you hear me? Be sort of rhymes. Beware of the wounded bear. Watch the bear. Who's the bear? Russia. Grandma, you've been there, right? Well, I've been close to it, and I, I do watch all the, all, a lot of that that's happening. I know uh, right now, I, I, I think you're probably going to talk about this, but the, their, their ruble is dropping dramatically. Putin is all over the place trying to... Yeah, she seems like a, an expert in international currencies to me. I'm, of course, everything she's saying is, you know, totally on the level, you know. Explain it, saying it's because we had an embargo against Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera, uh, all this rhetoric. But the bottom line is... Yeah, wrote, by the way, her name is Char Graham. Quiet for so long. Yeah. When you wrote that, they Russia was friends. very, very quiet. We were establishing relationships very strongly and thinking, yeah. wow, this is going well. Remember, tear that wall and down. And it is disintegrating quickly again. So... Watching failing. Yeah. Oh, people are literally going panicking in the streets. They're buying everything they can. And here's what God warned me. And a few hours ago, watch the bear. Beware the wounded bear. And this way he said, the bear doesn't have much to lose in this gamble. And a wounded bear is going to be dangerous. Yeah, wounded bears, you know, they're 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 really dangerous. Uh-huh. So, I mean, hasn't that totally revolutionized your walk with Jesus now that you've heard that? <laughs> yeah, again, squirrel, squirrel. That's what that is. These these are theological squirrels. This has nothing to do with what God's word says at all, and those claiming to be receiving direct revelation from God. You know, and say God's saying, beware the wounded bear, watch China, watch Turkey, and stuff like that. That's not God the Holy Spirit speaking. Yeah, Jesus said that when he would send the Spirit, the Spirit would convict the sin, uh, the world of sin and unbelief. Mm-hmm. 
The job of the Spirit is to point us to Jesus, not to tell us to beware the wounded bear. Yeah, you get the point. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have um, more examples of the theological squirrels uh, from Cindy Jacobs as well as from uh, T.D. Jakes. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Yeah, just up ahead is a path that will lead us to the main highway. Yeah, I, I hear the traffic from here. That was a nice little hike. I do enjoy this trail. It's just a simple three-hour hike. Hey, what's that up ahead? I have no idea. Let's check it out. It looks like a journal of some sort. It's really beat up. Should we read it? Well, we've got nothing better to do. Sounds good to me. Day one. Today is my first day of the Emmaus Walk. My church counselor, Gary Sunshine, told me that if I went out into the wilderness and believed and trusted in Jesus, that Jesus would come and walk with me and communicate to me. So I packed enough provisions to last me for a few days. Day two. Still no sign of Jesus. I've dedicated myself to meditating to bring myself closer to his presence. I hope it happens soon. Day three. I think I figured out what I've been doing wrong. I haven't been trusting Jesus enough with my walk. Now I've decided to go to the deeper parts of this jungle because I don't think that Jesus would associate himself with just the fringes of the forest. I think he needs to see that I'm audacious, so I'm going to forget the comforts I've brought entirely. Looks like some of the pages have been ripped out. It doesn't pick up again until... Day 9. Today, my stock of toilet paper ran out, and still no signs from Jesus. I should have enough food to get me back to civilization, but I think that Mr. Sunshine will be disappointed that my journey wasn't more fruitful. I think it's because I wasn't listening hard enough to Jesus. Day nine and a half. I think I'm lost. 
I think I took a wrong turn. Everything is starting to look really foreign and unfamiliar. Day 14. Today, my tent was attacked by a bear and was ripped to shreds. I just barely escaped, but I'm going to have to start foraging for my own food. I can only hope that I find my way back. Day 34. Today, I came across an indigenous tribe that was building a large metal sphere that looked far superior to any military technology. I was chased by them for about 15 miles. I'm really hungry. Day 42. I don't think I'm ever going to get out, and I just realized that I don't think I left Mr. Snuggles enough food to make it for this long. So far, still no sign of Jesus or enlightenment. I'm beginning to think that Mr. Sunshine was lying about the Emmaus Walk. Day 88. I think I'm done. I've gone through months of hunting for food with... Nothing more than a spork from Chuck E. Cheese's. I'm not even hungry anymore. I don't think that's good. Day 102. If you're reading this, then I hope that you're not as miserably lost as I am. There's no way out. The Emmaus Walk walk is a trap. If your church even so much as suggests the idea, then run for your life, because once you're on that path, there's no going back. I can promise you that Jesus is not in these woods. I can't blame him. I don't want to be here either. I can't do this anymore. I give up. She must have died while writing it. She wouldn't have written... She would have just said it and then died. Well, on any account, we'll never do an Emmaus walk. Yeah, I hear you there. Wait, have you ever heard of any of the mega pastors doing an Emmaus walk themselves? You know what? I haven't. <laughs> Maybe the world would be better off if they did. <laughs> How should Christians deal with false teaching in their midst? What should we do when our doctrine and our practice do not sync? What role does humor and satire play in calling out false teachings? These are the timely questions for the 2015 Brothers of John the Steadfast Conference, February 20th and 21st at Bethany Lutheran Church in Naperville, Illinois. Hear from pastors Brian Wolfmiller, Clint Poppy, Larry Bean, Hans Feeney, and Todd Wilkin as they address the theme, When Heterodoxy Hits Home. Also, don't miss out on the No Pietists Allowed parties, the Manly Man Breakfast, and Worship to Feed the Soul. To find out more and to register for When Heterodoxy Hits Home, go to Brothers of John the Steadfast at steadfastlutherans.org. We're back. 
Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that people claiming at the beginning of each year that they are receiving prophetic insights that they are in fact nut jobs, quacks, lunatics, rather than real prophets. That's a good thing, by the way. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Chief, mate, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Time for Try a Cindy Jacobs update. The, the Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. He'll take over the world. The pinky and the brain, yes, pinky and the brain. The twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. The pinky, the pinky and the brain, 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 brain. brain. Did you know that Cindy Jacobs blocked me on Twitter? <laughs> it's it's true. Yeah, it's weird. A lot of the people that we uh, <clears throat> review here at Fighting for the Faith um, block me on Twitter. It's it seems to be their way of protesting. But anyway, I was so sad to find out that that uh, Cindy Jacobs had blocked me on Twitter. But anyway, uh, the God knows television program, and no, I didn't make up that name. That is the name they came up with. It. It's called God knows, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've been reviewing segments from God Knows for a few years now, and uh, they, they apparently they work in seasons, and they've been out of season for quite a bit of time, but they've since gone back into production. So, I mean, it's, well, <laughs> let's, let's, let's just put it this way. Whenever they're in production, I always look at it as ready-made radio segments. That's how I view it. But anyway, uh, kind of working along the ideas of theological squirrels, utter distractions, um, here is... Cindy and Mike Jacobs interviewing a man they've introduced on their program as a prophet by the name of Sam Brassfield as they discuss, apparently there's this prophetic highway of holiness that goes from Texas all the way up to Duluth, Minnesota, all based on Isaiah 35. (laughs) Yeah, here we go. So the miraculous, we've seen the miraculous in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and the prophecy was I-35 corridor, Isaiah 35, you're going to see that whole metroplex, east and west, I-35, you're going to see all the way down to south, all the way to Duluth, Minnesota, I-35 corridor will be a highway of holiness. We're seeing... (laughs) You know, years ago... She, Cindy Jacobs actually got news coverage, no joke, on this Highway of Holiness nonsense. 
And uh, it just makes you <laughs> scratch your head and go, what on earth are these people thinking? But so apparently there's a prophecy. There's a the I-35 corridor from, you know, Texas to Duluth, Minnesota is going to be <laughs> highway of holiness. Yeah, if, if, if Cindy Jacobs is involved, it ain't going to be about holiness. It'd be highway of wackiness, something like that, but not holiness. We continue. In fact, uh, in January, we've got four meetings all on I-35 again, and we're seeing the miraculous. We're seeing miracles take place. Aren't you, know? you leaving here to go to Austin? I think uh, it is. Yes, we're cutting yeah, yeah, Austin. So that's a promise yeah. of right. God also, yeah? Right. Let's right. Wait. For those watching, you know, you might not know kind of what we're talking about geographically. Here in our area where we are, there's a highway called Interstate 35, and it goes from the top of the America. Uh, in Minnesota, all the way down to the bottom of Texas. And it goes through many, many cities. Well, I mean, one time, for instance, you know, Sam had prophesied about this highway. The Lord spoke to me to have prayer all along this. We did Mm -hmm. 17, 24-hour houses of prayer because the word of the Lord was that there were going to be miracles and signs and wonders and revival. But, you know, as an intercessor, I know that didn't just happen. You know, we've got to have to pray that word in. (laughs) (laughs) The prophet Sam Brassfield prophesied that that signs and wonders and miracles would be all along the highway of holiness because apparently of uh, Isaiah 35. I thirty five get it, and uh, and this isn't just going to happen. They're going to have to pray it into existence. Oh man, oh man, squirrel, squirrel. Yeah. So you know, there's Christians out there that are they're not out there proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for our sins and proclaiming and teaching and learning sound doctrine. No, they're out there right now wasting their time trying to pray in. The prophecy of the highway of holiness, I-35, from the tip of Texas to the top of uh, Minnesota. Ay, ay, ay. Word still for today, do you believe? Absolutely. I mean, because you gave that word to us to come. Uh, that was in 2003 where you, got, you received that word for us. But do you believe, if, if there are people watching, that that's still a relevant word today, that God wants to do that? All of those cities, we're seeing it down in Austin. The whole thing is they'll be awed. Sounds to me like uh, Mike Jacobs, is this really still a relevant word for today? Uh, it sounds like a little bit of doubt coming from him regarding the uh, the whether or not that highway of holiness prophecy is actually ever going to pan out. Yeah, and there's a good reason to doubt that because, that, I mean, that's not a recent prophecy. I mean, that, that prophecy, man, that's going on. I would say seven, eight, ten years ago, something like that. Anyway... You kind of get the point. So, yeah, um, again, this is all just distraction. This takes people's eyes off of what the real mission of the church is. And if you think that God's saying that he's going to establish a highway of holiness, <laughs> then, you know, here in the United States, because something in Isaiah 35, well, you don't understand your Bible and you're being distracted and deceived and led astray. I think I've made my point. Moving along. Don't want no loving, don't want no kissing, don't want no gal to call me honey. Yeah, time for a T.D. Jakes update. Hall of Fame, 
just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce, hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats, let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. El dinero, wanna be a millionaire. Give me money, 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 money. I want that green ammunition, that's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits, I'm a demon in addition. Give me shackles, give me pesos, let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Wanna get me a suit? That's made out of oot and whistle for wearing it green. I got that monetary itis like speeches like King Midas. Want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially. Any sum I can and beagle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. All right, that's Dr. Teeth and Money, Money, Money. Now, what we're going to be listening to is, well, a recent broadcast of T.D. Jakes's uh, <clears throat> Potter's Touch on uh, the Trinity Broadcasting Network as he's talking about abundant supply and demand. And you think, uh, what? Yeah, yeah, abundant supply and demand. Now, I thought supply and demand had to do with, like, economics and things like that. Apparently, it has something to do with what God wants to do in your life. Yeah, I mean, who knew? So... Here's T.D. Jakes to explain. Here we go. The children of Israel in the wilderness, they have left Egypt. They have left the confines of Egypt. They've left the Pharaoh. They were working for food. That's what slavery will work for food. They were working for food without commerce or money. They were working for food. And Pharaoh was supplying everything that they needed. Then they got out in the wilderness and God destroyed Pharaoh in the Red Sea. And even though he was a bad provider, he was still a provider. And now they lost their sense of provision in the absence of Pharaoh. Now... What? <laughs> what? God must show them that I will not take out of your life anything that I will not replace. And if I'm going to replace it, I will either re- catch this, I will either replace it or become it. So. <clears throat> uh, what? <laughs> okay, so let me see if I got this straight. Pharaoh was a bad provider, but he was a provider nonetheless. And so God took the children of Israel out of slavery into the wilderness, destroyed Pharaoh to show them that he's going to become their provider. I mean, it sounds almost plausible, but see, that's the thing. It's kind of like almost plausible. In fact, this feels like, hang on, you know know what this smells like, actually? Yeah, it smells like when they're trying to sell you a timeshare. You ever been to one of those things where, you know, they promise you like some thing, thing that you want, like a television or whatever, if you just sit through a timeshare presentation? This... Yeah, this, this smells just like a timeshare uh, sales pitch. Weird. We continue. It says, when I took your Pharaoh, when I took your Pharaoh out of your life, I took over the responsibilities of making sure that you didn't suffer like in his absence. And I will supply all of your needs according to my riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So God said, don't worry about Pharaoh. Yeah, you're kind of putting that text into the story of the Exodus, and it doesn't quite fit. Um, Timelines here, history matters. Don't mourn about that. Don't worry about it. I got you covered. I will supply all of your needs. So God starts sending manna down from heaven to feed them because they hadn't even learned how to handle commerce or money. 400 years of being a slave will destroy. (laughs) Really? So the children of Israel hadn't learned how to handle commerce and money. Could it be because they were in the wilderness? Were they? Where were they supposed to set up commerce? 
you know, <laughs> were they supposed to set up tourist stops along the road and sell trinkets to the caravans going, you know, from Egypt up to Syria? Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> your economic intelligence. So they don't know anything about money. They don't know anything about investments. They don't know anything about commerce. They don't know anything about the future. They will. Yeah, see, the children of Israel, they coming out of slavery, they had no idea how to play the stock market. You know, who knew? For food. So God says, I'll tell you what, you walk, I'll feed. So they started walking. And as they were walking, God started feeding. And, and, and the manna started coming down from heaven. To supply their needs. Here's the other thing I want you to know. When God sent the answer, it didn't look like food. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why is anybody taking this man seriously? They're all hanging on every word and amending him with every little punchline that he's giving. None of this makes any sense. Many times when God answers your prayers... They don't look like answers because the answer comes in a shape that is contrary to what you imagine. Ah, so because manna didn't look like, well, you know, what it was supposed to look like, what is manna? What was it supposed to look like again? And so because manna didn't look like that means that when God answers your prayer, the answer may not look the way you thought it was supposed to look because, you know, that's how you spiritually understand what's going on with the manna. Mm hmm. You think that God hasn't answered you, but he has answered you, but he didn't answer you in the shape that you had imagined it. Oh, I wish I had time. Throughout the Bible, whenever God sent an answer, it was always unrecognizable. They didn't understand what it was. They didn't understand who Joseph was because it wasn't what they had in mind. They didn't, they didn't understand who Joseph was because they didn't understand what he had in mind. What are you talking about? Who was expecting a Joseph? How was Joseph an answer to anyone's prayer? And who Jesus was because he wasn't what they had in mind. They didn't understand who the manna was because it wasn't what they had in mind. The disciples were waiting for Jesus on the boat, but when he came walking on the water, they were scared of him because he wasn't what they had in mind. When you got down on your... <laughs> oh, man, this guy is like slick. Just, I mean, he is the king of the con artists. Start praying for answers, and God sent the answer. Many times you will walk over it because it is not what you had in mind. But it is not about what you had in mind. It is about what God had in mind for you. Oh, Y'all don't hear what I'm saying. So oh, I, I heard every word, and none of it actually has anything to do with the story of the Exodus. Like, not at all. You are so distracting these people, it's not even funny. says, I will supply what you need. But I won't supply it because you need it. I will supply it because you're hungry for it. Because if God supplied on the basis of need, he would have given everybody the same amount of bread in the wilderness. Because everybody's body needs about the same thing to survive, but everybody doesn't have the same hunger. So I'm trying to make you understand the difference between... Yeah, you're not trying to make them understand anything. You're not actually r rightly exegeting any biblical text right now. You are just literally, you know, th this is uh, freewheeling it, you know. he's he's This is freestyle preaching, if you would, not bound to any text or any, well, meanings of words or sentences in context. No, you just... 
just freestyle, just make stuff up that comes to the top of your head. Appetite and sustenance. You need a certain amount of nutrition to survive. That has nothing to do with your appetite. Appetite has to do with what it takes to make you have a feeling of satiety. What do, at what point are you satisfied? When thou art eaten and are full, at what point are you full? You went back for seconds. He didn't. At what point are you full? God said, I will legislate my demand, my supply, according to your demand. If you put more. Really, really, where did God say, I'll legislate my supply according to your demand? Just not familiar with that text, like at all, anywhere in the Bible. I'll give more to you. So the Bible said, to the man who ate more, God gave more. And to the man who ate less, God gave less. And God said, I will regulate what I give to you according to the demand you put on me. And if you put a demand on me, God says, now, you know, I'm endless. I'll never run out. So the only, the only cue I have to stop is when you say you're full. Because if I open up and fed you according to my capacity, I would blow you up. So... <laughs> Really? God said that, huh? So God said if he supplies you according to God's capacity, he would blow you up. Oh, man. And there are people hanging, literally hanging on every single word this man is saying, and not any of it makes any biblical or even logical lucid sense. Go figure. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're going to be listening to an Andy Stanley sermon. It's an important one called Letting Go. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Quiet on set. Lights. Camera. 
Action! Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents... Cut! 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 We don't need lights. This is for radio. Fine. Strike the lights, people! Striking! Can we keep the camera? No. No camera. Oh. But can we at least have some action? Let me look at the budget. Yeah, we can have some action. All right, then. Places, everyone! Action! Now, oh, what is it this time? Um, we're not actually doing a Max Holiday right now. We're not? Then what are we doing? Well, we're actually promoting Mac and Trio, Inc. What on earth is that? It's a brand new company dedicated to providing quality and wholesome entertainment for all ages. That sounds interesting. Actually, Mac and Trio Inc. has already published three children's books that are available for purchase in both a digital and a hard copy format. And we even have a weekly online comic strip. Additionally, Mac and Trio Inc. is currently developing board games, card games, and even a children's television show. That sounds awesome! Where can I go to see all these great things? It's really simple. Just go to bit.ly forward slash Mac and Trio. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash M-A-C-K-I-N-T-R-I-O. That's a wrap, folks! To a fighting for the faith sermon review time. series and we completely ran out of title so we're just calling it brand new how's that yeah actually um about 20 years ago we began a brand new church and for those of you here with me today you're sitting the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via north point community church murrieta georgia andy stanley presiding the name of the sermon series is entitled brand new the sermon in the series is entitled letting go it's the first in the series and this is an important sermon and the reason it's important is because what andy stanley is doing here 
is kind of a spin, if you would, a very propaganda-like spin off of the uh, idea of the Old and New Covenants, but not talking about the Old and New Covenants in a proper sense and not talking about law and gospel in a proper sense. Instead, what Andy Stanley is doing, he's invented something called the Temple Model. Uh-huh. And apparently the Temple Model, well, is the bad thing. And you got to get rid of the Temple Model because you got to embrace the seeker-driven model. So what we're going to be listening to is seeker-driven propaganda designed specifically to reinforce or give the false impression that God's Word supports the way they're doing church in the seeker-driven movement. And since Andy Stanley is so high up in the ranks of the seeker-driven movement, this is an important sermon to listen to. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Andy Stanley's sermon entitled Brand New, Letting Go. Here we go. Well, today we begin a brand new series, and we completely ran out of title, so we're just calling it Brand New. How's that? Yeah, actually, um, about 20 years ago, we began a brand new church, and for those of you who are here with me today, you're sitting in it, and for those of you who are at our other campuses, you're sitting in churches that we continue to, to create all around the city and all around the country, and if you're watching on television or online, you need to know that we're not just a church, we're a whole bunch of churches, and we are committed to creating churches that unchurched people love to attend. That's what we do, and we might have a church in your neighborhood, and you have permission to do this while I'm talking. If you go to northpointpartners.org, you can see if we have a uh, church in your neighborhood or in your city, we would love to join you uh, for you to join us in an actual bricks and mortar uh, environment. Uh So North Point is basically franchising themselves and taking over other brick and mortar churches and turning them into little North Points. Not good. If not, you can just continue to watch online or television. But 20 years ago, we, we started a new church, but we started a different kind of church. And we started a whole bunch of those different kinds of churches. And it wasn't just us. There was a whole movement in our country and in parts of Europe and Canada. Yeah, the seeker-driven movement. So, the, again, this is a hugely important sermon. So he's talking of inside baseball, seeker-driven movement stuff here. Where, where church planners decided, hey, let's dispense with all the stuff that gets in the way and let's just try to make it a little bit raw and a little bit more community. And so if you notice, there are churches that pop up everywhere in every mall and every dark retail space. No more steeples, you know, um, no more pews, you know, they were uncomfortable. No more steeples, no more pews. Got to get rid of those. Those are creating barriers to the faith. Comfortable side, you put your Bible on one side and your purse on the other and you, you never filled up the space, you know. Um, they were hard to sit on. The preachers preached too long back then. Pe- Preachers preach shorter sermons now. Thought I might get amen for that. No more stained glass. The reason there's no more... Got to get rid of that stained glass. No more stained glass. It's expensive and it's expensive to insure. You have to put plastic stuff up and kind of messes the whole idea of stained glass up. But the the church has completely changed. And and most of you haven't paid attention to that because you have like real jobs and are raising kids. And I've paid very close attention to it. I, I don't have anything to do, so I've paid attention to this over the last 20 years. And those of you... Actually, you've more than paid attention, Andy. You have played a pivotal leadership role in this movement. You have been on this church journey with us. You may not have known this, but you have been on the cutting edge. We have kind of led the way with some other, you know, very, you know, well-known church leaders all over the country to create these different kinds of churches where it's more about creating environments. You know, you go into a church when I was a kid, you know, and I was grew up in... 
church, it was concrete, painted walls, you know. I mean, you could hurt yourself in there, and then they would tape, you know, stuff up on the walls. Now you walk into children's areas, even in set-up, tear-down churches, and the children's areas are like, you know, Disney or something. Um, it's more about, so it's more about environments. Uh, worship services are more like concert venues, you know. They're- yeah, more about environments, and uh, their worship experiences are like concert venues. Mm-hmm. There's no more windows. We don't want any natural light. We want moving lights and smoke and all. No natural light. Total darkness. They want to control and manipulate the light. All kinds of stuff. And if you, isn't it interesting? If you're on any kind of social media and somebody talks about their church or their youth group, you never see pictures of choirs. You never see pictures of suits. You never see pictures of pulpits. Now all social media, when people are loving their church and bragging about their church, it looks like a concert. But that's just because the church in America, especially in parts of Europe and Canada, is changed, is changing. And the best part of all is you don't have to wear a tie. Okay, that, wait, wait, wait. See, that was weak. No, 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 no. Here's, here's the big one. Ladies, you don't have to wear heels. That's what I'm talking about, right? And no more, you know, skirts and all that stuff. You can get up. And no more sound doctrine and boring sermons about, you know, the Trinity and stuff. Just kind of come like you just woke up. Some of you look like you. Anyway, the... <laughs> The preaching is way more conversational. We have that big giant box up here and fewer robes. I never had to wear a robe, fortunately. So, so, so much has changed. So much has changed. And it's been, I think it's great. I mean, the church is way more accessible for people who aren't really into the whole church thing. And nothing was wrong with any of that other stuff. But it just, it kind of got in the way a little bit of how quick the church could grow. especially. Oh, yeah. See, all that other stuff, you know, traditional churches, pews, sermons, <clears throat> hymns. Yeah, it just got in the way of the of church growth, doctrinal things. You know, they just got in the way. See, now that we've gotten rid of all of the trappings of church and have basically mimicked the world, well, now the church is growing. But is the church really growing? Because the church isn't a building, and so the, based upon the number of attendees, that's not how you tell whether or not a church is the church is growing. The church grows when people are brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Uh huh. So in these seeker-driven churches where people are told to, you know, at the end of the sermon after they've been, God's word has been strip-mined for life principles that they're supposed to, uh, you know, to, you know, make, you know, put into effect into the life and apply in order to experience life change. That when, you know, at the end when the the lights are dimmed, because there's no natural light, and the lights are dimmed and people are told, and the sappy music begins to play, and, you know, you get that false impression that the Holy Spirit is now falling on the auditorium, and people raise their hands because they've committed to things like getting out of debt or spicing things up in the bedroom between... Uh, they and their spouse, um, you know, uh, to apply principles to have better behaved children, um, uh, to find the spiritual meaning in the latest Spider-Man movie. Um, When they do these things, are they really brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? I would say no, they are not. Then why would we believe that the church has grown? See what I'm saying? If anything... All of these things that Andy Stanley is talking about is great things that make the church more accessible to people in reality are keeping people out of the church because they're not hearing the message of law, gospel, sin, grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. And, and if anything, you know, they might have higher attendance, but the church continues to shrink because unless somebody's brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, 
they're not a Christian and the church hasn't grown by a single person. Especially in areas where it's just so expensive to build those big expensive buildings. But, and here's what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. With all of that change and with all of that progress and with all this cool stuff and with all these amazing environments and with all the lights and bands and smoke and, you know, shorter sermons and all that stuff, we are still holding on to things that hold us back. We're still holding. Oh, so we got to get rid of. So what's holding us back, Andy? Holding on the local church, especially in the United States, I think everywhere, but I can't speak for everywhere. In the United States, especially, even with all the progress and all the facilities and all the environments and the paints and the colors and the parking lots and all the stuff, we st- we continue to hold on to things that hold us back. And if you are not a church person, and if you've had a bad church experience and you don't really like Christians, but you know, for, and you probably have a good reason if you told us your story, and you have a tendency to resist church, this is the perfect sermon series or message series for you to be a part of or to listen to or or to watch online because here's what we're going to discover here's what we're going to discover together most of the things most of the things that you resist about church are things the church should resist most of the things that a person generally resists about church are actually things the church should resist about itself we're going to talk about some of those things it's going to get interesting a little bit emotional you might even be a little bit upset but that's okay we're used to that so think just think about it this way from, as, from an outsider's perspective, not as a church person or a Christian, from an outsider's perspective, what even is the church? What is the church? I mean, from an outsider's perspective, the church really should be this. The church is really nothing more than a community of people who follow the teaching of a man sent from God to explain God and to, and to clear the path to God. That's pretty much what an outsider should, you know, how they should. What about belief in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins? Yeah, see, because God adds to the church those who are being saved. So you're saying the church is a community of people who follow Jesus. Notice the verbs there. Everything is you doing. You do, you do, you do. What did Jesus do? What am I, you know, Christians in the years past have been called believers. These sound like doers rather than believers. Something's going wrong here. Should view the church. It's simply a community of people who follow the teaching of a man sent from God. We think he was more than a man, but hey, you, you know, that's just what we think. Who you know, follow the teaching of a you No, know, it's not just what you think. That's the reality of the situation. He is more than a man. He is God. Of a man sent from God to explain God and to clear the path to God. That's Did Jesus came from God to explain God and to clear a path to God. I thought Jesus came to seek and save the lost. I thought he came to earth in order to die for the sins of the world. So to somehow, uh, Jesus came from God to explain God. You know, I've been, you know, I'm Jesus and I'm here to explain to you, God, because, you know, you've had a hard time figuring it out on your own. So I'm going to find once and for all kind of explain him to you. something sounds wrong here. That's that's essentially what the church is. So what is there to resist about that? I mean, you don't have to agree. You don't have to like it, but you shouldn't dislike it unless there's more to it than that. And not only are... Yeah, that's kind of the weird thing. Notice, so what's to resist about that? So notice his thinking here. And this is an important piece of the seeker-driven movement that they really believe that, you know, that if sinners left to themselves, you know... To just, you know, if they would like Jesus if it weren't for the church. And so this is this idea that, you know, hey, you know, everybody's basically kind of good. 
And um, and as a result of that, you know, we don't need to, you know, make a big what we need to do is move, remove the barriers because people would naturally come to church all on their own if it weren't for the church. But that's not what Scripture says. Romans chapter eight, verse six. Here's what it says. For the for to set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So here's the faulty premise of the seeker-driven movement. And it's this, is that people are generally good and are curious and want to know about Jesus, and they would come to him if we would just remove all of the barriers that keep them from coming to Jesus. And so we got to get rid of everything that has to do with church, you know, like long sermons, doctrine, and we we need to get rid of stained glass, pews, hymns. We need to basically create an environment that uh, the, the pagan understands and can thrive in, and, you know, and see... That's the there's nothing for them to resist. But see, the scripture says that they are they're hostile to God. That's what scripture says. So we're born dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter two bears this out very beautifully. Chapter two, verse one. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Notice it says dead in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we got a problem here. The seeker-driven movement has a false anthropology. Their anthropology, which would basically be their their view of the man or their doctrine of man, is that man is not dead in trespasses and sins and is not hostile to God. Man is basically good, somewhat misguided, sinful, albeit you know they they, they, they do things wrong. But if the church would just get rid of all of the things that the barriers, they would just come flocking to church. And that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says the reason why pagans don't go to church is because they are hostile to God. They are dead in trespasses and of, in sins, and um, and they are by nature objects of God's wrath. That's why people. That's the reason why people don't come to church. So notice there, false anthropology, false set of assumptions, and all of these, this false anthropology and this false set of assumption creates the basis by which they do everything in the seeker-driven movement. We continue. Are we a community of people who have committed to try to follow this guy who cleared the path to God and to explain God? Now, His- I, I got to back that up. Notice we are a community of people who've committed. What about we are a community of people who've been raised from the dead, whom Christ has redeemed and purchased and regenerated? See the difference? So, the, the, huh. We're a community of people who believe in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Notice what the where all the verbs run now. All the verbs run on the side of the person doing, not believing in faith. Listen again. There's more to it than that. And not only are we a community of people who have committed to try to follow this guy who cleared the path to God and to explain God, his primary application, his primary, here's what I want you to do, his three top commandments, in fact, it really was just one command with three applications was, get this, this is threatening, love God, love one another, and love your enemy. Yeah, and that's the summary of what? Summary of the law. 
Now, if you have not heard my Robert Morris episode that I did a couple weeks ago, talking about the principle of the first, the first hour I explained the difference between law and gospel, the old covenant and the new covenant. You need to listen to that. When Jesus says, love God, love your neighbor, love your enemies, who is your neighbor, by the way? That actually, that third one fits into this second. That's the summary of what? The law. The law doesn't save you. The law is the thing that shows you your sin. And prior to you being a Christian, all it does is accuse. That's all it does and shows how you fall short. After you are brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the law shows you what God's will is for you to live out here as a Christian. But it, it, the, uh, its accusatory function is silenced by Christ's shed blood on the cross. So that's third use of the law. Second use is to show us our sin. But notice all the verbs. We've committed. And here's what God wants us to do. Love God, love people, love our enemy. What about repent and be forgiven of your sins? Notice he's not talking about that. Although the gospel will come into play here. So what is there to resist about that? In fact, there should be, there should be nothing, absolutely nothing resistible about the church except one thing. And that is our loyalty to Jesus Christ. No, again, Scripture is clear in Romans 8 that those who are sinners, who have their mind set on the flesh, it says they are hostile to God. God is the thing that is resistible to them, and God is the one that they are running from and hate. So again, this is huge that he's laying this out this way. And here's the cool thing. For the first 300 years of Christendom, for the first 300 years that the church was, uh, existed, the first 300 years, the only thing or the primary thing that people resisted about the church was exactly that. People persecuted the Christians. The reason Christians were persecuted is because they said Caesar is not our king. Jesus is our king. And Caesar didn't like that. And Nero didn't like that. And no Yeah, why didn't they like that? Because they believed they were little god kings. And the people in the Roman Empire worshipped them as little deities. Idolatry. In other words, they were hostile to God. Right? That's what Scripture says. So notice his appeal to history here doesn't actually hold up under biblical scrutiny nor historical. None of them like that. And so the reason Christians were persecuted, it wasn't because they were weird. It wasn't because of their music. It wasn't because they were judgmental. It wasn't because they put people off. It wasn't because they were exclusive. It was because they said, hey, as nice as we can possibly be and as, you know, as community-minded as we are, at the end of the day, we believe Jesus is our king. And in a kingdom where they already had a king, that didn't play very well. And yet, And why would that be? The reason why is because they're hostile to God, dead in trespasses and sins, and an object of his wrath. Yet the first century, second century, third century church thrived in spite of the fact that there was resistance. Now, wouldn't it be cool? I just think, just imagine this. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be cool? This is how they work. Wouldn't it be great? Just imagine if we could just get rid of all of the things that make church resistible. The whole world would come to church. This is false way of thinking. be cool. If the only thing people had bad to say or the only thing people said bad about the church was, you know what, they're great neighbors, they're great bosses, I hope my daughter marries one, I hope my son marries one, they treat their women like it's just amazing, It'd be, you know, those Christian women are the luckiest women in the world. I mean, everything about them is amazing, but they think Jesus is God and oh, I just can't handle that. I mean, wouldn't it be great if the only thing people complained about us is that we had such an extraordinary devotion to Jesus? 
But I'm telling you, in my lifetime, I have never, ever, and I'm, I'm sure there are cases of this, just in my personal experience, I've never heard anyone say, the reason I resist the church and the reason I don't like Christians is because they follow Jesus. I've never heard that. I've heard a thousand other reasons to make us resistible, but never that. Yet Romans 8 says that they are hostile to God and they do not submit to God's law. Weird. Have you read Romans 8? The church should be irresistible except for the fact that we believe Jesus is Lord and that he was the son of God. And it's okay to resist that, but anything else about us that's resistible, that might be something we need to resist. Years ago, I, was, I had an opportunity to go to China. I took my oldest son, Andrew, and one of my best friends, Dave Wills, and his son, Jonathan, who's a friend of Andrew. The four of us went. And part of our trip to China, we had an opportunity to tour some factories. And it was absolutely fascinating. We saw where some things were made for Home Depot and Lowe's and some other companies that we buy from. And just saw the, the whole um, the supply chain management thing where it starts. In some cases, we were in some large cities and some small cities. And in one of these factories that was a little ways out, this guy was guiding us around. And during the tour, he asked if one of his employees could shadow us so she could learn to give tours to visitors. And we said, absolutely. She was about 25 years old. Um, She was a a national. She had worked on the floor, was super smart. So they had, um, she had moved up to management. And so she was, you know, in training. So she never said a word. She followed us around through the whole tour. We get to the end, the owner and his. um, So notice he's not going to a biblical text. He's going to an anecdotal story from his life to back up his contention that, the church, except for, you know, the fact that we worship Jesus, should be totally irresistible. I guess sort of like their version of a vice president of the company were explaining how the company worked. And then they said, okay, that's about it. Do you have any questions? So we had a few questions. He said, any other questions? And out of nowhere, we haven't heard from her the whole tour. You know, we were there about two and a half hours. She says, I have a question, <laughs> which kind of shocked us all because... She wasn't supposed to ask questions. And so we all turned and she looked at me and she said, just out of the blue, she said, are you a pastor? I said, well, yes. And she said, well, here's my question. And in her pretty good English, way better than my Mandarin, I guarantee you. She she said to me, she said, here's what she said. Why doesn't everybody, why doesn't everybody in America go to church? And I just... I didn't know what to say. Why doesn't everybody... Real simple, because every single American is born dead in trespasses and sins and hostile to God. That's what God's word says. That's the answer to the question. In America, go to church. So I said, well, I need to ask you some questions. And here's what I discovered. A couple of years before this, somebody had given her some Christian literature. She had read it and listened to some things, and she had become a follower of Jesus. But the state-approved churches were too far away, and the we used to call them underground churches, but the non-registered churches in her area were hard to attend, a little bit dangerous to attend. Sometimes the government turned their a blind eye. Other times the government would get involved. And so she had been to church. Why would the government get involved, and why would it be dangerous to go to a church if, the, if Jesus is so irresistible? Why would a government be opposed to Jesus? And loving God and loving others. Hmm? Doesn't make any sense. The answer is simple. Scripture says people are born dead in trespasses and sins. And Romans 8 says they are hostile to God. A good bit, but very inconsistently. And she loved church. And she heard that in the United States there were churches everywhere. And she had heard that most Americans don't go to church. And she could not figure that out. 
Why wouldn't everybody want to be a part of a community that one another's one another, that loves one another, that forgives one another? Who wouldn't want to gather with people to celebrate the fact that they've been forgiven? Who wouldn't want to celebrate with people and gather with people to celebrate what they learned about God and continue to learn about God? And she just didn't have a category for the fact that there were Christians who had an opportunity to attend church or just Americans. And so, you know, Pastor Stanley, why wouldn't everybody in America attend church? And I had no answer for her question. Yet if you knew your Bible, Andy, you'd know that everybody's born dead in trespasses and sins and hostile to God. It's not my opinion. That's what God's word says. New Testament, by the way. These are my words, not hers, but who doesn't? Who doesn't want their life to be better and who doesn't want to be better at life? And here's what you've discovered. Who doesn't want their life to be better? Again, the, the Christians in China who attend these unregistered churches, there's no guarantee their lives will be better. They might end up in prison or dead for worshiping Jesus. And here's what we've discovered, and here's hopefully what you'll discover. When you decide to follow Jesus, regardless of what you believe about Jesus, even before, even if you never come to the conclusion that he's the son of God, even if you never see him as the savior of the world. So you can follow Jesus without believing he's the son of God or the savior of the world. Really? This is news to me. Anybody who takes the teachings of Jesus seriously, anyone who embraces the teachings of Jesus, your life will be better and you will be better at life. And who does not? Wow. That is an amazing soundbite. Andy Stanley just literally said that if you follow and take the, the, the uh, teachings of Jesus seriously, even if you don't believe that he's the savior of the world or God in human flesh, it's going to make your life better. So Jesus is the conduit for better life, regardless of what you believe about him. Wow. What does that tell you about what his church is about? I want their life to be better, and who doesn't want to be better at life? So she had a good question. <laughs> Why doesn't everybody in America go to church? How did we become so resistible? How is it there are things that... The church is not the resistible thing. People are hostile to God by nature. God is the resistible thing. They are at war with God when they are born, dead in trespasses and sins, under the power and dominion of sin, death, and the devil. People say about us the reasons they don't like us have nothing to do with the fact that we believe that Jesus is ultimately our ultimate authority. Where did all that other stuff come from? What in the world happened? So apparently something's terribly gone wrong in Christianity, and Jesus would be so irresistible if we would just get rid of the resistible parts of Christianity. See, the, what's the problem? The problem isn't the people outside of the church, dead in trespasses and sins. No, the problem is, well, what goes on inside the church. How did we become so irresistible? How did we become so resistible? And here's what we're going to discover. And you need to don't miss any of this series, okay? Here's what we're going to discover together. We're going to discover that the resistible factor is not the result of new things being added, but old things that got added back in. That the thing that makes us resistible is not that new things got added, but old things that should have been left behind got added back in. Now, to help you understand that and to set the context for this series, I want to introduce you to something that we're going to call the temple model. The temple model. The temple model. By the way, again, this, if you haven't listened to the, the, uh, the episode where I lay out the proper distinction of law, gospel, sin, grace, old covenant, new covenant, 
And that's in the Robert Morris episode on the blessed life and the principle of the first. It's the first hour. You need to go and listen to that right now. They, because what he's doing here now, he's introducing this thing called the temple model. And somehow this kind of explains what's gone wrong within the church. Why is Christianity so resistible? It's because we've brought back elements of the temple model. And you go, what is the temple model? Keep in mind, uh, who was it who revealed the creation, you know, who ordered the tabernacle to be built, which became the temple? God did in the Old Testament. So we've got a weird thing going on here, and it's not a proper distinction of the Old and New Covenant. It's the temple model. That's a bad thing. And that's why Christianity is so resistible, because there's elements of the temple model that have crept back into the church that don't belong. You're going, well, we don't sacrifice um, animals. What's he talking about? Listen to this. Now, the temple model represents all ancient religions, pretty much, and, re- and represents many of the religions that are a part of the world today. So the, the temple model goes all the way back to Egypt, Assyria, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, um, the Jewish temple system. Uh, uh, the Jewish temple system. Notice that the Jewish temple system is lumped into the same category as the Egyptian temple system, as the Roman temple system, as the Greco Roman temple systems and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. Would you think that if you were living in the days prior to the incarnation of Jesus Christ and you were a Jew living in Judea, would you think that the temple there and the what was revealed in the Torah, the Mosaic Covenant, that it was equivalent to literally the same thing as you know and had the same flaws as the greco-roman temple system the egyptian temple system hmm we've got a huge problem here folks like i said this is an important sermon this is seeker driven propaganda in its purest form and it is a major twisting of god's word um, there are examples, of, again, as, we, as I said today, but the temple system always has four components, and here's what they are. In the temple system, there's always a sacred place, there are sacred texts, sacred men, and sincere followers. Okay, so let's see. Sacred place. Hmm. You mean like the temple mount? Uh-huh. The place where God caused his name to dwell? I would just point you to the passages when Solomon finished his temple. What happened when the Holy Spirit, when God actually showed up and visibly his presence descended upon the temple? Go go watch it. it it's in the scriptures. Just You can find it in the Old Testament. Hmm. Okay, we've got a problem here. Um, so sacred place, sacred text. So apparently the sacred text is a bad thing, right? Hmm. Was the Old Testament scriptures, was that revealed directly from God to Moses and the other prophets? Yeah, it was. So apparently the temple model, bad thing when it has a sacred text, man. Yeah, can't have that. Hmm, weird. And then you got men, men leadership, and, uh, well, sincere followers. Let's see what goes on next. Now, I don't think sincere is the best word, but I wanted them all to start with an S, okay? (laughs) I almost put superstitious followers because in many cases it is more about superstition than it is about sincerity, but we'll give everybody the benefit of the doubt and use the word sincere. So in the temple model, you always have a sacred place, 
And somewhere housed in that sacred place are sacred texts or oracles or inscriptions. And those sacred texts are controlled by, interpreted by, read by sacred men. And it's always men. Have you noticed? It's always men. So male leadership, patriarchy, that's all. It's evil, man. Weird, huh? Yeah, notice that God in the Old Testament did not permit women to uh, serve in the temple. Nope, only men. That's the real, that's the one true God, by the way. Jesus, who is also the one true God, is the one who revealed that. And then in the New Testament, women are not to be the ones who are to be pastors. God is exclusively, through the Holy Spirit, revealed in the sacred text of the New Testament that men are to be pastors. So what, see what he's doing here? He's pouring acid, and I mean this, postmodern acid on biblical Christianity with this sloppy analogy of the so-called temple model. And these sacred men then tell all the followers, all the sincere followers, all the superstitious people, all the believers of whatever that religion is, they say, here's how you're supposed to live your life. And if you don't live your life in that way, God will judge you and God will punish you. And in some cases, they'll threaten you with hell. Um, mm, yeah. You know who talked a lot about hell? Jesus. In fact, no joke. You'll find in Scripture the person who talked the most about hell in the most explicit details. That was Jesus. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, there's hints at it in the Old Testament, but nothing compares to what Jesus said regarding hell. He is the teacher of hell. Weird, isn't it? What we're listening to here. In mud hut regions of the world today, you find the same system. If you go into just about any mud hut region of the world, you'll find that the most powerful person in that community is the witch doctor. And the witch doctor has a place everyone fears to go. And there's generally some kind of border. He doesn't need a fence. All he needs are a few well-placed skulls and some trinkets. And nobody goes close. That is a sacred place. And the witch doctor can fix you, heal you, or curse your enemy. And the witch doctor controls the truth and controls the manifestations and controls what people are supposed to do within that region. On the other side of the spectrum, we have currently in Syria and Iraq, what do we have? We have some sacred places with some sacred texts, with some sacred men interpreting those sacred texts, asking people to do things that we think are horrendous, that we think are an affront to God. But in their minds, they are being consistent to what they're taught by their sacred men who control and interpret those sacred texts in those sacred places. Now notice what he's doing here. He's not making any distinction at all. No distinctions. So notice this description then of the temple model. Well, that would fall. Well, you know, if you go to a church that believes that, you know, when we gather, you know, this is the body of Christ gathering and that the place we're meeting is sacred, you know, the house of God, if you would. And you have a male leader opening up the scripture and preaching to you, telling you what God says and threatening you with hell if you don't repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Notice what he's doing here. That makes the, a, a Christian pastor the moral equivalent, qualitatively equivalent to an imam and in, uh, in what's going on in the Middle East regarding ISIS. So the temple model is alive and well, uh, well today in the world. But what we're going to discover is that much of this, this temple thinking is alive and well in the local church.
And that's the thing that's making Christianity so resistible. You know, male pastors, sacred spaces, sacred texts, sincere followers, temple model. Notice, where did he, by the way, get this temple model analogy from? Did he actually glean this from Scripture? Because, you know, what's funny is is that the book of Galatians makes the distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But, it, you know, the Apostle Paul writing, uh, you know, in defense of the New Covenant and salvation by grace alone through faith alone, he did not lay out the so-called temple model and say, this is the thing that you need to be aware of. And neither did Jesus anywhere. Where did he get this idea of the so-called temple model? Answer, he's the one. Andy Stanley is the guy who invented the concept of the temple model. And, it, well, it sounds like it's biblical because he's preaching this in a sermon at a Christian church while they're, you know, they're gathering in community, right? So it's got to be true because, I mean, this guy's been to seminary. He's studied God's Word. He's been a pastor for so long. I mean, he's got to be telling us the truth this, that God doesn't want us to follow the so-called temple model. Where in Scripture are we warned against the temple model as well? And anyone, anyone, anyone that can stand up and say, if you don't do the following, you go to hell. That person has a lot of power. In fact, the temple model grants extraordinary power to sacred men. It's always men. And mm -hmm. Yeah, again, yeah, it's weird because Scripture reveals in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, that, um, well, pastors are to be men. And we're to call people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins and warn them of the impending judgment of Christ when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. There will be some, according to Jesus, who will find themselves thrown into the lake of fire. Weird, isn't this? Notice what he's doing. He's completely undermining biblical Christianity. In sacred places who determine the meaning of sacred text. Now... If you look at that and you go, well, Andy, isn't that exactly what this is? Like we got this sacred place and then you're up there with the sacred text saying, here's what the Bible says. Here's what it means. And when I read it, Andy, I don't get any of that. So I guess, you know, then every once in a while you throw a Greek word at us like, well, then why am I even reading an English Bible? You have to know Greek. And then there's like a Hebrew thing. And then you do some twist and we just sit there and take notes and whatever Andy says to do, whatever Andy says to do, we walk out hypnotized. I mean, don't, aren't we kind of running the temple model right here in our local church? And isn't the temple model the way most local churches are? You got the guy up there, you know, now there's a few women mixed in, but it's still mostly men. And we tell you and you do. And if you don't, you'll go to hell. And if you do this, you go to heaven. And how do you know? Because, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't possibly understand the text the way that us educated people do, right? <laughs> so what we're going to discover in this series is that even though the temple model has trickled in, to the New Testament church and into the, this, this gathering that we call the followers of Jesus. It should not be that way. And here's why. Yeah, I'm going to stop. Notice he said it should not be that way. The temple model, it should not be that way. Now, before he says here's why and explains what the here's why is supposed to mean, let's take a look at Scripture. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order, appoint elders in every town, listen to what it says, the husband of one wife, 
and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word, that would be the sacred scriptures, as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Right there, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, lays out two of the major pillars of the so-called temple model, male leadership, sacred text, and the leaders who are teaching have to be instructed and give instruction in sound doctrine. Hmm. And tell what the, what the text really means. Uh-huh. Verse 10, same chapter. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and they must be silenced, for they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got a major problem here. What Andy Stanley, again, this is pure, purpose-driven, seeker-driven propaganda. And it's based upon a false anthropology and a false ecclesiology and this so-called temple model that he's saying is, the, is all the problem. It's a myth. There is no such thing. Scripture does not warn us about a temple model. This is not the same thing as the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. This is a very dangerous teaching that he's putting forward. The arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple model, not just for the Jews, not just for ancient Jews. The arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple model for everybody in the entire world, for everybody on the entire planet. In fact, at the end... No, actually, the, the uh, arrival of Jesus signaled the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant and the establishing of the New Covenant. And by the way, the Old Covenant is not synonymous with the so-called temple model. That's not the same thing. Although there was temple sacrifices in the Old Covenant, those all pointed to the old, their ultimate fulfillment, which was Christ, the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. So he's, very, he's playing very fast and loose with definitions here. Jesus did not come to abolish the temple model. He came to fulfill the Old Covenant. We continue end of Jesus' ministry, he calls his closest followers together and he says, I know you love Jerusalem and I know there's a lot of cool stuff that's happened here, but I want you to leave. And I don't want you to just go to the areas where Jews live. I want you to go to every single ethnic group in the world and I want you to tell them what you've seen and tell them what you've heard because this is a message for all men everywhere. Yes, that's right. The Christianity is Catholic. That means universal, small c Catholic, in the truest sense. It's for all people, for Jews and Gentiles. That's the wonderful thing about what Christ did. He died on the cross for the sins of the world, not just a particular tribe of humanity. But again, he's not paying attention very to careful definitions here. He's purposely blurring definitions and basically throwing a whole bunch of things into the mix in order to create the false impression that this so-called temple model is the thing that Jesus came to abolish. That's not what Jesus came to abolish. He came to fulfill the Mosaic Covenant. We continue. 
That when Jesus appeared, it signaled the end of the temple model and the beginning. And this is the most important part. The beginning of something entirely new. I want us to say these two words out loud together. Ready? Entirely new. How new? How new? Entirely new. There would be, get this, there would be no more sacred places. No more sacred places. You know why? Because Jesus would teach that you are sacred and you are sacred and you are sacred and you are sacred and you are sacred. And when you are standing on what you consider to be the most sacred spot on the planet, never be confused. The person to your left, the person to your right, and the person behind you is more sacred to God than any piece of dirt you'll ever stand on in any building you may ever visit. There would be no more sacred places and there would be no more special sacred people. You would no longer need a high priest. You would no longer need for anyone to tell you how to please God. There would never... Wow, this is blasphemous. I'm serious. It's blasphemous. It's not true. There ever need to be a time when you went to a place and someone beseeched God on your behalf. There would never be anyone to use a big word who would need to be... You mean like pray for somebody? Be the propitiation for your sins. I mean, Jesus is our high priest and he is the propitiation for our sins. Nobody else would have to go before you. All of that would end. And the sacred text, the Old Testament would be fulfilled, Jesus would say, with a single verb, a single word. That this was the beginning of something brand spanking new. It was all New. It wasn't temple version, temple system 2.0. It was a complete departure. How do I know that? Because of this. Jesus predicted, for example, a new movement. By the way, this is what we call a false dichotomy. Mm-hmm. This is a false dichotomy. Because nowhere in scripture is this dichotomy made. Oh, it's temple system versus the new thing. But listen to what his, his verse. One day he and his guys are headed up to Caesarea Philippi, two different names for the same city, Caesarea Philippi. Um, the name would change when Jesus, about the time Jesus got his learner's license, they changed it to Caesarea Philippi to honor Caesar Augustus. And they're talking about Caesar Augustus apparently. And then Jesus says, okay, we know who Caesar is. Who do people say I am? And they're like, well, they think you're John the Baptist resurrected or you know, reincarnated. They think you're a prophet reincarnated. Jesus says, well, who do you guys think I am? Remember Peter? He said, I'll tell you who I think you are. I think you are the Messiah. You are the one we've been waiting for. You're the one the whole Old Testament points to. I think you're the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are exactly right. That's who I am. And God told you that. You didn't come up with that on your own. And then listen to what Jesus said next. Listen to this prediction. And then Jesus said, and I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, this declaration that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, I will build future tents. I will build my church. And unfortunately, this little word should have never, ever, ever entered the English New Testament. It's the Greek word. You've heard us talk about this before, ekklesia. And it literally means gathering, assembly, congregation. And in this moment, Jesus announced the beginning, not of a sacred place and not a sacred group of people who had some kind of inside knowledge. Jesus announced the beginning of a brand new movement. In fact, in the movement, I don't think so. In the first English translation of the Bible, in the first English translation of the Bible, the word church does not appear. Because William Tyndale had the guts to not be politically correct. He had the guts to translate ecclesia to be the word that it really was, to the meaning it was. He said, it's a congregation. Jesus announced a brand new gathering of people. And he was burned at the stake for making that 
term, the term in his English Bible. Really, the, William Tyndale was burned at the stake for his translation of that specific passage, saying that on this rock I will build my congregation. That's the thing that got him martyred? Huh. I thought he was martyred for translating the Bible into English, not that specific passage. So we've got a historical inaccuracy going on here. And then the super smart people who had to control everything we'll talk about in two weeks decided, no, we're going to take a German word that actually means house of the Lord, that means a specific place, a sacred place. And we're going to take a German word and we're going to insert it in the English version of the New Testament. And that's where we get the word church. And that's why when you think church, you think place. When you think church, you think space, sacred space. Jesus said, no. That has come to an end. No more sacred spaces. I'm going to build a congregation, a gathering of people, and I will be with them wherever they go. This is a brand new day, a brand new era. I'm launching something brand new. Jesus instituted a brand new covenant as well. The word covenant simply means an arrangement. This is a new arrangement with God. Before this new covenant, you had to have a high priest. You had to, somebody, had to have someone go to God on your behalf. Jesus says, no, I am establishing a brand new covenant. The old approach to God, it's over. Regardless of your religion, regardless of the name over your temple, regardless of your deity or deities, a new day has come. And God has opened the way for all mankind to approach him directly. Because the final sacrifice for sin is about to be made known. Here's what he said as he gathered his disciples toward the end of his ministry. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup, and they had no idea what he was talking about till later. This cup is the new covenant. Now they all knew they were under a covenant because God had established a covenant with Israel and these were good Jewish boys. We know we're already in a covenant. Why do we need a new covenant? Just hang on, Jesus would say. Tonight, I'm establishing a brand new covenant in my blood. How can you establish a covenant in your blood? You're sitting here with us and you're not bleeding. I'm so confused, they would think. But as they stood and they watched him bleed to death on a Roman cross, eventually it dawned on them. This is the final sacrifice for sin and not just for us good Jews, for all mankind. And then Jesus gave, this was amazing. Jesus even gave new meaning and new significance to the sacred text. He gave new meaning and new significance to the sacred text. One day he was teaching, and again, as an English Bible reader and as someone who maybe you just read the Bible devotionally, these kind of things slip by us. But I assure you that day when Jesus said this, this was the crowd went silent. These were the kinds of things they tried to stone Jesus for that were so extreme. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, or basically the Old Testament. Do not think that I've come to abolish them. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. This was a big statement. Jesus claimed that the entire Old Testament funneled down to him as a person. Jesus claimed that all the prophets were prophesying about him. That all of the deeds in the Old Testament somehow reflected forward to his arrival. Jesus said, I'm fulfilling the Old Testament law. The law leads to me and the law ends with me. I'm simply, the Old Testament was simply a directional sign pointing in my direction. Who would say that? 
And then later, looking back, the Apostle Paul about 20 years later would say, he was right. The entire law, the entire law was like a tutor bringing us to the place that we were ready to graduate from having a tutor to be introduced to our Savior. It's like the law were simply guardrails to get us to the place where we would be introduced to our Messiah. It was as if the entire Old Testament, all the stories, all the poetry, all the richness, the entire Old Testament was like a cocoon. And from that cocoon, the Savior of the world was birthed. And while the cocoon played an extraordinary role in history, an extraordinary role in our faith, once it was finished, it was finished. And Jesus says it's finished because I have fulfilled everything in the entire Old Testament. Now, real quick here, he's appealing to the distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in order to abolish sacred text, pastors, male leadership, um, and this idea of sacred space, well, that's got to go. That's got to go. But is that really what Jesus got rid of, sacred spaces? I don't think so. And then Jesus, to replace the law, because we've got to have behavioral guardrails, Jesus said, oh, it's way more simple than 630 laws. In fact, it's way more simple than Ten Commandments. Jesus instituted a brand new movement-defining ethic. And this is the part we're going to talk about in maybe week three or week four that, again, we've read the verses. If you grew up in church, you've heard this a thousand times. But for these Jewish people, this was so significant. He gathered with his closest followers and he said to them, here's our word again, a new command I give you, a new command I give you, love one another. Didn't sound all that new, did it? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And when he said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another, they knew exactly what he meant. This, this was not like random acts of kindness or hold the door or bring you a meal when you're sick. It went way deeper than that. Because Jesus had just, right before he said this, Jesus had just taken off his outer garment as a rabbi, put a towel around his waist and washed their stinking feet. And they were so uncomfortable. I thought the way Jesus loved us was by dying for us on the cross. These were the hands that healed people. These were the hands that picked up mud and put them in a man's eyes and he could see. These were the hands that embraced Lazarus after he rose from the dead. And now he was going to take these very same hands and wash their feet. And Peter said, no, you cannot wash my feet. Jesus said, sit down, Peter. I'm going to wash your feet. And Jesus did, don't miss this. Jesus did for them what none of them would do for each other. Jesus did for them what none of them would dream of doing for each other. And then he put his outer garment back on. He said, now, as I have done for you, that is what you are to do for one another. And guys, in those moments when you think you're a big shot, guys, in those moments when people sit at your feet to listen to what you have to say because you are with me, Guys, in those moments when suddenly the crowd surrounds you because you're one of the people who is closest to Jesus, in those moments when you think you're something, you remember this night. Yeah, that's not in the text. Because you will never be greater than your master, and I wash your feet. And in this moment, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus took the entire leadership paradigm, and he turned it upside down, and they never forgot It was his way of saying, when you start thinking you're one of those sacred people, that means you just get the towel out and you wash more feet. No, um, that's not what the referent is. So when you think you're one of those sacred people, you know, male leadership in the church, well, you just need to get back to washing feet. Uh Uh-huh. 
Notice he's not going to the biblical text to talk about the pastoral office. Nope. This is a text that's not talking about that, and he's twisted it to make it about that in order to get rid of sacred space, sacred leaders, male leaders, and sacred texts. That's what my movement is going to look like. And then he said to them, and by this, what you just experienced, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you love the way I just loved you, he said, because what I just did when I washed your feet, I set for you an example of how you are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my follower. If you love one another, that love would replace law keeping, that self-sacrifice would replace animal sacrifice. That the yeah, yeah, love is the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. This is a confusion of law and gospel here. Yeah, we're forgiven by Christ's shed blood on the cross for all of our inability and transgressing of God's law. That the vertical would now be measured by the horizontal. That the evidence that you're a Jesus follower isn't how well you pray or how consistently you attend church. It's how well you love people who are difficult to love. To the point that Jesus even said, if you... Yeah, what about belief and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If you are at the temple... If you are at the temple and you're about to make a sacrifice to make things right with God and it dawns on you that things are not right with your brother, God can wait. Leave your sacrifice and go make things right with your brother. This was a total departure from temple thinking. And then Jesus did. Yeah, again, that's the wrong referent. Did the most unimaginable thing imaginable for that group of people. We read this because we're, you know, Gentiles. We read this because we're 2,000 years removed. We read this and it's just words on a page. But this was staggering. Jesus gave new meaning to the most important Jewish celebration of all Judaism, of all ancient Judaism. He gave new meaning to the most important ancient celebration of Judaism. He gave new meaning to Passover. Now, I kept trying to think, what would be an equivalent? What, what would be as offensive to you as this must have been to the men in the room that night? And, I, and this is the best I could come up with. If you're a Protestant, okay, if you're not Catholic, imagine that tomorrow it hits the news. There's a proclamation from the Billy Graham Association. They send out a, uh, a press release to every major news outlet. It's, it's everywhere. It's all over social media. And Billy Graham has requested that when he goes to be with the Lord, because he's so respected when he goes to be with the Lord, he asked that from that point forward on Christmas, we celebrate his birthday and we do Christmas in remembrance of him and his birth. Yeah. It'd be like, that's weird to hear me even say, isn't it? It's like, and yet the Passover always pointed to Jesus, even in the Old Testament, the Passover lamb who was slain. And it doesn't say the disciples were offended by what Jesus did. We'd be like, okay, you know, we, Billy, Dr. Graham, we just love you to death, but you're not Jesus. Well, what if Pope Francis had an idea? Pope Francis, as he gets, because everybody loves Pope Francis, as he gets to the end of his term as Pope and he makes his final declaration, you know what? Because, you know, I, because I, of the significance of what's happened while I've been the Pope and I'm loved by so many people and I know when you want to remember me. So after I go to be with the Lord, when I open my eyes and I'm in the presence of Jesus and I experience the new resurrection and I experience my resurrection body in light of that, from now on, on Easter, when you celebrate Easter after my death, I want you to celebrate my home going. I want you to celebrate my death and my resurrection. Uh, 
I was like, okay, we love you, Pope Francis, but dude, you are not Jesus. Now I'm telling you, are you listening? When Jesus gathered with the 12 for Passover, and the scripture says, I'll let you see it. He says, he took the bread and he gave things and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body. And they're like, no, no, this isn't your body. This, hey, wait, wait, this is Jesus, Passover. We're celebrating. This has been going on for over a thousand years, you realize. Yeah, uh, where is that part where the uh, disciples protested what Jesus said? It's not in the text. For over a thousand years, more like 1400 years, Jews have celebrated Passover to celebrate when God through Moses, big Moses, Mo, when Moses delivered the people out of Egypt. The reason we're back in the promised land is because that's what we celebrate Passover. And the bread is a reminder of that final Passover meal where we had to eat in a hurry because the next day we were leaving. Jesus says, no, this is my body. Okay, okay, okay. You're Jesus and all, but look, 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 okay. Can we start, maybe we can start a new tradition. Like the day after Passover, it could be your body. But you can't mess with Passover. This is my body given for you from now on. When you do Passover, you do this in remembrance of me. Okay, okay, Jesus, look, we have, we have been very flexible, all right? <clears throat> I mean, everybody hates us for, for the most part, you know, except just a few handful, okay? We have been with you. Nowhere did the disciples protest and uh, debate with Jesus on this. You through thick and thin, and like nobody can do miracles, that Lazarus thing. Whoo, you know, everybody's still talking about it. So we're with you, okay? And you're Jesus, but you're not Moses. Okay, Moses saved the whole nation. Who have you saved? Hang on. Who have you delivered? Hang on. I'm telling you, when Jesus changed the significance of Passover, they should have all gotten up and left the room. But this was Jesus' most dramatic way of saying, this is not the continuation of something. This isn't temple model 2.0. This is the be- Again, the temple model that you've described is the thing you've made up. It's not synonymous, nor is it even remotely biblically equivalent to the Old Covenant beginning of something entirely new. The arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple model in the beginning of something. Let's say it together, entirely new. No more sacred places. No more special people. That's right. No more pastors. The Old Testament, get this, the Old Testament would be fulfilled and all of its laws reduced to a single verb. A single verb, the entire law reduced to a single verb that would be applied to God, your neighbors, and your enemy. And after the resurrection, the ascension, the church got off to an amazing start. And then some temple model thinking started to be blended into Jesus' following thinking. Yeah, all the, all the way back at the, the time of the writings of the Apostle Paul in the pastoral epistles. Weird, huh? Yet their scripture. And some things that should have been left behind got blended in. And some traditions and some attitudes and some consciences that were so tied to the old way, they just, they just couldn't let go of the old way because their consciences had been so fine-tuned. To- so if we can just get rid of sacred spaces, you know, places with pews and stained glass, and get rid of male leadership that interprets the sacred texts, you know, pastors, 
Oh, then the church would be irresistible. Temple thinking. And unfortunately, much of that temple thinking is still part of the church today. And for most of it, it is the reason we are unnecessarily resistible. Uh huh. Unnecessarily resistible. So the reason the church isn't growing is because of churches that consider their sanctuary to be a sacred space. Pastors who are men who preach from Scripture and their leaders, uh, their followers, who uh, you know, f- who sincerely follow after them. Mm-hmm. The temple model, right, that Jesus got rid of. And yet no passage of Scripture says that Jesus got rid of the so-called temple model because it's not the same thing as fulfilling the temple sacrifices and the one sacrifice of Christ. This is not a proper understanding of the Old and New Covenants. This is the is a propaganda twisting of God's word in order to basically impugn those people who actually follow the biblical model for church and have biblical pastors who are men who rightly handle and teach God's word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we are going to figure it out. And we are going to let go of the things that have been holding us back. And we are going to do our best by God's grace to re-embrace and to fully re-embrace what Jesus had in mind when he said, this is something new. And it's not just a knockoff Judaism. It is completely brand new and it is for everyone. Go into every single nation because what you saw in me and what you heard me teach works everywhere for everyone, regardless of their prior religious tradition. And so by God's grace, perhaps in our generation, we will be used to strip away everything that makes the church of the Lord Jesus Christ unnecessarily resistible. So if you attend a church with a pastor who reads and preaches from the sacred texts, exegetes God's word, teach a sound doctrine in a place that your your congregation considers to be a sacred place where they meet. You are holding the church back. You are making Jesus resistible. You are to be gotten rid of because you are standing opposed to the true movement of Jesus. You have got to be stopped. We have got to get rid of you so that we can lovingly replace your churches with true communities who are following a movement. I I wasn't lying when I said this is one of the most important sermons that I would be reviewing in a long time. This is horrific. But for that to happen, you can't miss next week. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the end of his sermon. I, uh, you know, I, I think I've said what needs to be said. This is a completely different church model than the biblical church model that's revealed to us in the New Testament. And he did not tell us the truth about Jesus getting rid of the so-called temple model. That's just a veneer, you know, a fiction that he wrote that uh, it designed to make it look like it was, you know, following the biblical teaching regarding the old covenant and the new covenant. But it wasn't. What it that no that wasn't that was a full on declaration of war against any church 
any church that has a male pastor who exegetes God's word in a sanctuary that people believe as Christians is a sacred place where they meet. No joke, that's exactly what that was. What do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>